real, real conversation, conversation and some hard truths. Hard truths. Gangs, Gangs, drugs, drugs and, guns. and guns. Giving a voice to those willing to sacrifice. We have stories that need to be told. We have lessons that need to be taught. Protect and serve. Welcome to The Quiet Professional. Hey everybody, back again. It's Nathan Romus with you. And today we have another repeat guest. We have the Chief Firearms Officer for Alberta, Terry Bryant on. Uh, Terry was here in, for episode three. So a couple months ago, lots has happened since. Lots of rule changes, legislation, uh, so on and so forth. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Uh, welcome again, Terry. Well, thank you, Nathan. It's great to be here. Always a pleasure. Yeah. Oh, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, you're a busy person. So that's one of the things I wanted to get into and find out what have you been up to since? How many gun shows have you been to? Have you been keeping track? Well, uh, I don't keep track, but as, as Minister Ashley cited one of my jokes at a press conference recently, which is that if I'm not at an Alberta gun show, it's because I'm at a different Alberta gun show. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so uh, I did have to miss one recently because of the, you know, the big announcement I was had to had changed my travel plans. But uh and we may miss one because of, uh, I'm not sure yet, uh, because of the uh, mourning period for the Queen, but uh, mm -hmm. the un unfortunate passing of the, Her Majesty. But um, otherwise, yeah, I'm always there and also other events. I recently attended the um, Provincial Championships of uh, IPSC. How was and, that? Oh, it was great fun. Yeah, I spent a day out there with uh, people and then attended the the uh, uh, banquet. Uh, one of my... Um, Firearms Agents was also a competitor in that competition, and there were a number of other people that I knew there. So, so I was going to say IPSC, uh, for anyone who doesn't know, it's a pretty big firearms competition. Uh, it's Canada. They have them in the U.S. Yeah, it's a worldwide thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, obviously there are some countries where regulations don't allow it, but uh, it, it, it's a, an activity that's uh, it's definitely an international organization with many uh, countries competing. Have you ever taken part? Yes, actually, that was um, sort of the first form of competitive shooting that I did uh, back in the late 80s. And as I was pointed out to people, I was a participant in the 1988 BC Provincials uh -huh. of uh, IPSC. So how'd you do? Uh, well, I was just a beginner. And so I don't know, I think I there were four classes back then, A, B, C, D, and, uh, you know, DU was beginners and I was like second D or something like that. I think. Okay. So, um, yeah. so I was happy. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not someone who's ever going to be an Olympic level competitor, but you enjoy doing it just to see what you can do. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're really, um, like most people, I think who aren't ever, most people in most sports realize they're not going to be elite athletes. They just want to, to improve themselves and they're competing with themselves and they're, mm -hmm. you know, how well they've done in the past and, and, um, you know, just enjoying the camaraderie of, which was a part this time I wasn't competing, but just enjoying the camaraderie of being with other people. Yeah. Was, I, well, exactly. You want to be out there and it's, it's good fun. Be out in nature, mm -hmm. see all your friends. And, um, I think it's good to push yourself once in a while and see kind of, you know, test your skills. Yep. So. Um, what else have you been up to though, since you've, you, we've seen you, I know there's been 
changes in the office. So in the chief firearms office, uh, you had a recent announcement uh, about some more funding and more positions. So how's that going? Well, uh, last, um, let's see, I guess it was September 8th. So uh, we were very fortunate to have the premier and uh, premier Kenny and the uh, minister, Mr. Tyler Shandro, minister of justice and solicitor general, present with me at a press conference in the McDougal Center in Calgary, where uh, it was announced that we would receive a major boost to our funding to allow us to uh, process our public safety and client satisfaction issues uh, in a more timely fashion. And uh, so that's going to see a major expansion of the office. We currently have 30 staff this will sort of come in two phases, although they won't be separate. They'll be kind of overlapping. One is an increase in staff doing the kind of things that we're currently doing, uh, 20 people for that, and then an additional 20 people to uh, gradually patriate the, uh, the tasks that are currently performed by a central processing unit in Miramichi, New Brunswick. Okay. So you say you had 30 right now, you're looking at expanding with another 40 on top of that. Yes. And do you see kind of a timeline of uh, when you might have that completed? Uh, well, uh, in, in a word, as soon as possible, because it's <laughs> uh, desperately needed. But uh, so the timeline is basically we're starting immediately to try and um, get the planning in place because... If you're going to be recruiting people, you know, you have to write job descriptions, get those approved, post mm -hmm. them on government websites. Then, you know, there's a mandatory period. They have to be open and, and then do interviews. And then once we've chosen people, get security clearances and then get them trained and so on. But we'll be starting that process. I mean, we are starting that process immediately. We started it like the day after I got back. Mm -hmm. So... um Probably we will have the first people in place. Uh, we're hoping by, you know, maybe January, in the January to March period. A lot depends on how long the security clearances take. Okay. Are those security clearances, is that just, you're talking like uh, similar to a police security clearance? Um, well, it's what the RCM, most of our, our people, uh, it's what the RCMP refer to as uh, enhanced reliability. Hmm. So... It's more than checking that you're not subject to outstanding warrants or yeah, something yeah. like that. Um, but it's one of the lower levels. So it's not as high as confidential or secret or top secret. Okay. Um, one of the things we talked about briefly offline was with uh, some of this new funding and you know more than doubling your capacity or the amount of people you have working for you, uh, what's kind of the goal for that? And maybe to dispel some of the narratives out there. Um, what is it not doing? Okay, well, the first thing is, I mean, obviously this is not a decision taken lightly because the, the well, our provincial government and, and I think all governments generally, uh, I think are quite concerned about restraining government expenditures. But in this case, um, what we're basically doing is uh, the additional staff, uh, in the, particularly the, the first 20, are going to enable us to process files more quickly with 
uh, an emphasis on public safety issues. So some people are, are under the impression that the activities of our office are kind of a, a you know, a frill that we're providing us a, a leisure service to a small minority of people. First of all, it's not a small minority of people. It is a minority, but there are 340,000 uh, possession and acquisition license holders in Alberta. That's about 10%, a little over 10% of the adult population. So it's a fairly substantial mm-hmm. uh, group of people. And while there are recreational shooters in there, a great many of the people who require possession and acquisition licenses actually require them for uh, either sustenance or their livelihood. So, for example, uh, many people uh, find that the meat that they uh, are able to harvest when they go hunting uh, forms a substantial part of their diet. So I was talking to a woman up in uh, Grand Prairie recently, and she has a, for her family, if they can um, harvest an elk and a deer, that will provide them with basically as the food, the meat that they need for the year. Mm-hmm. And so that's one important element. Another element is that many people require the, their license for their livelihood. So for example, ranchers who may need to protect their livestock or um, armored car guards who need to have a possession and acquisition license in order to qualify to, to carry the sidearm they need to, to protect our deliveries of cash and other, um, other valuables around the uh, province. So it's, it's not uh, a possession and acquisition license is not a frill by any uh, stretch of the imagination. So providing right now, the uh, entire federal firearm system is very seriously overloaded, mm-hmm. both due to long-term underfunding and recent measures that have uh, caused a, a very drastic spike in the demand for firearms regulatory services. So people have been waiting, <coughs> excuse me, people have been waiting um, six months, nine months, a year sometimes mm-hmm. for their uh, permits or even renewals. And so this is it's a completely unacceptable uh, turnaround time, particularly for those people who need it, uh, you know, on a on a non um, on a non um, uh, leisure basis. They need it for their livelihood or or to assist in their supplying food for their families, putting food on their tables. So, but even for uh, people who are in a uh, leisure situation. Um, it can have dire consequences. So uh, if you, if your firearms permit expires, you have six months in which you're not committing a crime, um, a sort of a grace period, but you can't use your guns during that period or buy ammunition or anything. Mm. So you wouldn't be able to go hunting. You wouldn't be able to, uh, to, to um, participate in the activities that may be uh, important to your livelihood. And then, um, once you go beyond that period, then the consequences are even more significant. And I mean, people have applied well ahead of time, six months, eight months, and sometimes even that's not enough. So um, there's that uh, important aspect to the customer service angle. But even more important is the the public safety issues uh, associated with the work that our office does. And so one of the things that people forget is when you get a firearms license, it's subject to what we call continuous eligibility. And so what that means is, this is sometimes referred to as daily background checks, which is, it's a little bit more dramatic way of putting it than is maybe appropriate. But 
but basically, um, continuous eligibility means that if at any time you cease to be eligible for a firearms license, then it can be revoked. It's not, you know, that we only look at it every five years. It is looked at all the time. And so things happen in people's lives. Somebody might have had an unfortunate incident. They might have got arrested. They may have had a mental health issue, a marital breakdown, any one of uh, many kinds of life events that may have changed their their eligibility. Mm-hmm. And those those situations, some of them will turn out to be not a problem. Some of them will turn out to be a problem, but they need to be reviewed and assessed quickly. And then there are other situations where it clearly is an important public safety issue because the person has uh, maybe had their firearms license. Um, they've been subjected to a firearms prohibition or mm-hmm. things like that. All of these matters need to be addressed quickly in order to ensure that the only people who legally possess firearms are people who are legally qualified to possess a license to possess those firearms. So how do you, or how does the office get notified that somebody's either situation has changed, their, uh, if they have conditions like release mm-hmm. conditions have changed? So where do those notifications come in? Um, well, they... they um, uh, we are on a variety of computer systems, so uh, many of those will come in through that uh, source, particularly police incidents. Mm. But other kinds of incidents come in uh, in a variety of ways. People might, we might just get a public safety notification. Somebody um, might call or like notify yeah. us that you know my neighbor's gone crazy and or something like that, mm. and that would require us to um, to evaluate further whether that person is still qualified to have a firearms license if they have one or, you know, if they have applied, uh, that would obviously affect whether they would be eligible to, uh, to be granted one. And then, um, we also get, uh, an, you know, when people do renew their licenses, they are required to answer a series of questions about things like their mental health status, uh, whether there have been changes in their marital health or marital uh, situation or, um, you know, serious life reverses that might cause them distress. And so those also have to be uh, investigated. And in many cases, you know, it's not a problem. Every, all kinds of things happen in people's lives. So just because somebody got a divorce or went bankrupt or something, it doesn't necessarily mean they're mm-hmm. going to have their firearms license revoked. But it it is a time when that needs to, when the situation needs to be evaluated. That's all things considered. Yeah. Yes. Right. And so, uh, and you know, we don't, I, I don't want you to get the wrong impression because our office is very much in favor of preserving uh, lawful firearms ownership. And so we do, but part of preserving lawful firearms ownership is ensuring that that is kept distinct from unlawful mm-hmm. or unsafe firearms ownership. And so, um, our officers are, are are quite well trained and have a good background in making those kinds of assessments. And so, I mean, it may be, it may simply involve a conversation, you know, do they need to call somebody up or it might involve a, a more extensive investigation. If there is a need to revoke or refuse somebody's license, then those kind of situations um, are more time intensive because mm-hmm. In the same way that, uh, 
you know, police officers have to have a convincing case if they're going to court. Um, we have to be prepared to defend our decisions. They don't have to meet the same standard mm -hmm. as in a in a criminal trial. Uh, the standard we have to meet is that the decision must be reasonable. But um, at times that can be uh, a challenging thing. Is it? Is it just? Uh, would it be like a balance of probabilities, kind of like civil law? It's like fifty-one to forty-nine. We don't think you should have this. Um, well. The, the standard is simply reasonable. Was okay. it reasonable for, was the decision uh, of the firearms officer reasonable? And so far, uh, in every case that we have gone to court for what's referred to as a reference hearing, it's not technically an appeal. A reference hearing is its own sort of legal beast. It's not really comparable to any other uh, legal uh, proceeding. Um, everyone that we have um, gone to court on, we have won. Can you talk a bit about that process? So I guess there'd be two, maybe they're separate, maybe they're not, if you could clarify. So whether someone already has an existing PAL and you need mm -hmm. to revoke the PAL or somebody applies, just their their license expired and they're applying all mm -hmm. over again or they're brand new to it. What do those processes look like for uh, denying those? And I guess on that, maybe including... Like firearms are not written into our law as a mm. right. Mm -hmm. So it's not like the U.S. So oh. where does that threshold kind of come from as to whether somebody has to be given a PAL or is denied one? Okay, so um, we're getting into uh, matters where, where uh, perhaps a lawyer might be able to come up with a better <laughs> structured decision, yeah. but... Uh, I'll do my best to give you at least a, a kind of um, Cole's notes. Yeah, not to put um, you on the spot. Uh, I'm not expecting um, a very technical legal answer, uh, but uh, yeah, a thumbnail sketch. So, uh, the uh, we can refuse if uh, we can refuse to either issue someone a pal or to revoke their pal if it's not in the interests of that person or of any other person. Uh, it, you know, in this that it would pose a potential. Uh, danger to the safety of that person mm -hmm. or any other person. And so that's the kind of the standard. If there is, if it's not going to be safe, then uh, that's the, uh, that's the criteria, I guess, not the standard. That's the criteria that we have to use. Is it going to be safe for that person or for any other person? So if that person has demonstrated, for example, a propensity for self-harm, uh, then it wouldn't be in the interests of that person to be granted a firearms license. If they have indicated a propensity for harming other people, then, or have other characteristics that would lend themselves to that, um, uh, that would suggest that kind of a propensity, then also we can, that, that's a criteria for uh, denying. Now, how certain do we have to be? Well, our decision has to be reasonable. And so that's, uh, it's, it's quite a, it's a much, it is definitely a lower mm -hmm. standard. And that reflects the fact that, as you've suggested, under Canadian law, whether you agree with this in principle or not, and, and there is, of course, a, a spectrum of opinion on, on firearms that mm -hmm. is quite broad in today's society, but under Canadian law, it's a highly regulated privilege, not a right, mm -hmm. to own a firearm. And so um, 
it's a little bit of a, um, you know, there, there's two ways you can approach things. One is that, it, you know, in, in the U.S., for example, they've typically said it's a right, but it is a right that, there can, that can be regulated. Yes. Uh, and here, it's a privilege, but it's a privilege that there has to be a reason to deny you. Mm-hmm. And so um, it's, uh, the difference sometimes is more a matter of degree uh, yeah. and, and, and the, the rhetoric surrounding it. But in any case, here in Canada, it is a it is a highly regulated privilege to own a firearm, and we must uh, have um, the decision of a firearms officer to refuse or revoke a firearms license has to be reasonable, and that has to be based on the potential for um, harm to someone or uh, to that person, and. That can be interpreted fairly broadly. So in some provinces, for example, they have said that, um, you know, if you are not going to, if you belong to an organization that will not um, cooperate with the police, then you would be posing a risk because you're not going to comply with the laws that uh, are there to help keep Canadian society safe. Yeah. Well, we saw that uh, there was a recent decision uh, in BC right. with the uh, member of the Hells Angels yes. and they were denied a license. And this is after they, mm-hmm. uh, if I get the mm-hmm. details right, trying to remember the article, mm-hmm. they had a pal mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. they joined the organization yeah. and then they were denied upon renewal. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I can see how maybe life's situations you know, can preclude you from renewal yeah. or being given one. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's important from the standpoint of public safety that people be, um, you know, law abiding and responsible and stable uh, people if they're going to be firearms owners. But it's also important to the firearms community that firearms ownership, legal firearms ownership, be constrained to people who meet those characteristics Mm -hmm. because if they don't, then that discredits the community Mm -hmm. and that will result in more and more laws. This is why I think it's essential that we have the resources needed to promptly and effectively uh, process all of our applications and renewals so that we ensure that only the people who um, meet the criteria um, are in the are, are regarded as law-abiding firearms owners and and have the privilege extended to them of having a possession and acquisition license. Yeah, and I I think a lot of people when they well I guess when they hear the question they're looking for a real black and white answer and it's mm-hmm. just if you know I have A B and C then mm-hmm. I'll be denied. Well, <laughs> it's not that simple mm-hmm. and there's a lot that goes into the decision. Uh, the reasonableness. So when I, one of the agents makes a decision, mm-hmm. hey, this person shouldn't have mm-hmm. a, a pal anymore mm-hmm. or be given one mm-hmm. at all, who determines that it's reasonable? So does that actually go to the provincial courts and like an actual judge is looking at no. this or so, somebody else? So normally um, in, in our office, we have kind of three levels of... of um, staff who are what I would call uh, operational in terms of processing things. We have program coordinators and they deal with the simplest issues 
you know, they're the ones where if somebody's application is missing a bit of information, they'll call it up, for example, and find out where that missing information is. And I mean, they do a lot of other more challenging things, but that's a simple example mm -hmm. to give you an idea of, of what they do. Then firearms agents, um, they will deal with somewhat more complicated issues and they will prepare files for firearms officers. So it is usually a firearms officer who will make the, the uh, decision, mm. but then that decision will be reviewed like refusals and revocations we have to take seriously because for one thing, it has, a, can often have a significant impact on somebody's life, but also it is, uh, there's a, a reasonable probability that those decisions may be challenged in court. And so we have to make sure that the case is solid. Mm -hmm. And so, um, a firearms officer would, um, come to that conclusion and usually that conclusion would be reviewed by a couple of additional levels the senior firearms officer and uh, perhaps the operations manager would uh, review those to make sure that when we uh, refuse or revoke somebody that uh, we're doing so within the authority granted to us by the firearms act and that it is likely to stand up in court if challenged okay so kind of talking about the processes and mm -hmm. uh, how things kind of proceed through them. What are some of the, we'll get into maybe mm -hmm. some of the stats. Mm -hmm. So what are you, what is your office looking at for um, maybe processing times on average, just protesting, processing times for uh, PALs, for firearm approvals, how many uh, with the recent import mm -hmm. ban, mm -hmm. uh, you know, what are the, uh, numbers looking like for how many applications for uh, transfer approvals are there? Okay, well, uh, so these, the, the numbers change daily, so I'll, I'll be able to give you rough orders of magnitude. But I think it's important here to understand, uh, and this is where a lot of people, uh, I think, are um, somewhat unclear on how the system works, because it's, it's not a very transparent uh, system. There are actually a number of things that would tend to give someone the wrong impression, even if they were trying to find out what was going on. Mm -hmm. So you've asked about two things. One is possession and acquisition licenses. The other is the approval of transfers of restricted firearms, mostly handguns. Um, the overwhelming majority of them are always handguns, and especially now because there's the, the uh, looming um, transfer freeze um, that is... Uh, proposed in Bill C-21 when that um, eventually works its way through the uh, parliamentary system. So in both these cases, the majority of the work is currently, well, supposed to be done in Miramichi, New Brunswick. Okay, so with possession and acquisition licenses, one applications, all the applications start in Miramichi, and then they do the ones that where they believe there are no eligibility issues. So that might be, you might refer to that in shorthand as a, as a clean application. So if it's a clean application, there's no flags, nothing looks problematic. They just process them there and they do it um, without our involvement. Okay. The only involvement that we have in that is that I have to actually designate the people, give them the authority 
in New Brunswick to deal to do that on our behalf. Then the ones where there is some kind of potential eligibility issue, those are the ones that come to our office under the current arrangement. Okay. Mm, okay. That uh, represents only maybe five, max ten percent of the applications on a numbers basis, but a much higher percentage of time uh, because each of those is going to be labor intensive. At the minimum, it might involve, you know, uh, reviewing the file and maybe a phone call. At the other end, it might be several days of investigation and multiple interviews with a variety of parties. So, um, what that uh, means right now is that um, the majority of the applications, the backlog, is in Miramichi, New Brunswick, because they process the bulk of the applications. So um, that backlog, as I have mentioned, is currently in the range of six to 12 months. The goal of the expansion that we have announced is to return the turnaround time to a uh, what's referred to as the service standard. The service standard is supposed to be 45 days for processing a clean application. There's a 28-day mandatory waiting period included in that. Mm -hmm. So that only is really like two and a half, three weeks for the actual processing. Mm -hmm. So if we can get that down, and I believe we will get that down, to somewhere in the range of you know 45 days, two months, something like that, um, that's what our goal should be, and that's what we're, uh, what I will achieve. Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm not going to pussyfoot about it. That's going to be that we're going to get there one way or another. So, uh, of course, you know, subject to maintaining uh, public safety standards at all times, but uh, we will reallocate resources. We'll do whatever we can to to meet that standard. But right now, it's not in my control because most of them are done in Miramichi, New Brunswick. So yeah, that's... I, I think people might be under the impression that, you know, everything goes to the province and no. they're doing everything. So that's interesting. Yeah, the vast majority, like probably 90, 95% are actually not done by us right now, but they will be done by us mm -hmm. because there are a variety of issues. Um, first of all, the federal system has been under-resourced. Uh, I've been to Miramichi, the people who work there are great people, they're friendly, they're hardworking, they're dedicated to the program, but there aren't enough of them. And there hasn't been enough for quite some time. So even before the current spike in demand for firearm services, you know, for example, when they announced the handgun freeze, suddenly everybody wanted to get their RPAL yeah. so they could <laughs> buy a handgun, you know, um, which was not a sudden... Uh, it wasn't a, you know, a sudden urge. It was that they'd always been thinking about it, but now they realized if they didn't do it right away. Yeah, you know, this is your last uh, shot. This is your last <laughs> last shot, as it were, uh, <laughs> if you'll pardon the pun. So, so we hope to get that, um, you know, that uh, we need to get that, that um, processing time down. And we also, there are, I think, a lot of efficiencies and public safety benefits to doing it all in one place. So there are, and I, I, I deliberately for 
um, security reasons. I won't mention too specifically what what uh, th- these are, but there are a few um, shortcuts in processing that I don't think were appropriate that have been adopted out of necessity mm. there, and I would like to um, to revisit those decisions. So we want to um, make sure, for example, that all of the cases where we thought there were no eligibility concerns, that there actually aren't any eligibility concerns. Mm-hmm. So, so that's one uh, benefit. And the other benefit is that um, we want to have things only touched once. You know, that's a basic principle in processing. If you can have the item just touched once. I'll just have, do it right the first time, right? Yeah. And instead of, well, we'll do this and then we'll pass it on to here and then mm-hmm. it'll go there and so on. We'll try and pass it on, you know, have things just processed once. So uh, it will also result in much better um, transparency of the system. Because right now, as you've uh, mentioned, I go to a lot of gun shows. So I meet gun owners and they say, well, you know, my application has been in, you know, where is it? It's been in process for so long. Where is it? What's happening with it? I don't know. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, I can have somebody eventually find out, but it's not happening in my office. Mm-hmm. And if there is a problem, it's not always something I can respond to right away. And what I want to be able to do is to, if someone has a problem, to give, be able to give them a straight answer and say, okay, here's the situation, you know, um, I've, or, you know, ask one of my firearms officers or, or agents, you know, uh, will you please look at this gentleman's situation, take his data, look it up in the system, find out what the problem is, and uh, either solve his problem or explain to him what he needs to do to solve his problem. Mm-hmm. And right now, that is a very difficult process, both because of the complications involved in having the um, processes done in different places, and also because... Um, we have, um, uh, well, I forgot my train of thought there now, but um, anyway, it's, it's, um, it's difficult to, to, do, to be fully transparent with people on where their applications are right yeah. now. And so we want to make sure that, um, that we can give people straight answers, get their problems solved. So that's kind of the situation with respect to... Um, to um, possession and acquisition licenses and where uh, where that stands right now and where we hope to get it moved with this uh, increase in resources. The other area um, that you uh, mentioned is transfers of restricted firearms. Mm-hmm. Now, again, this is one of those things. This is actually, under normal circumstances, even clearer. Normally... All firearms transfers, uh, restricted firearms transfers, have to start in Miramichi. They're the only ones that can put them into the system. Okay? So once they're in the system, in theory, anybody in the Canadian Firearms Program could work on them. But normally, the current allocation of work under the existing federal-provincial agreements has been that um, Miramichi would basically do all of them. Um, a very tiny percentage would be referred to us because there was some issue 
that needed to be clarified about the individual or the firearm, but like we're talking about a fraction of a percent there. So why would the federal government want to maintain that though? Why not send it down to the provinces to deal with? You know, they they can well, staff some, it however they want and do what they they need to do. Yeah, in some provinces that is done that way, but it's a historical anomaly that in certain provinces at times in the past when they maybe had staffing issues, they reached these agreements and it seemed like a good idea at the time as mm. so often, you know, there are so many of those things that, that uh, have turned out to be unfortunate decisions. But, you know, when you look back, it seemed like a good idea at the time. And yeah. maybe it was a good idea at the time, but even if it was a good idea at the time, doesn't necessarily mean it's a good idea now. Mm-hmm. And so, um, Normally, all of, essentially all of those transfers would be done in Miramichi. However, as you're probably aware, when the federal government announced that they were proposing to ban the transfer of handguns, with certain very limited exceptions, that triggered a massive uh, rush to stores mm-hmm. who immediately sold out basically their entire inventory Virtually every store sold all their inventory and then everything they could get from distributors. I went to distributors and they sold, said, yeah, well, we sold all of our stock and we sold all of our demo guns. And we sold all of, yeah. you know, everything that, everything but the kitchen sink, yeah. kind of. And some were still being brought in until uh, the recent, um, basically, uh, ban not quite a ban, but effectively a ban on the import of of, uh, restricted firearms, handguns. So um, the uh, initial thing was there's this huge surge based on on the the supply in stores. But people thought, well, you know, okay, once that's done, that's done, right? But what they forgot is that for many people, they have a very substantial, particularly older people, but not only older people, they have a very, very substantial investment in firearms. They mm-hmm. may have um, amassed a collection of firearms over decades. And if they, they may have anticipated, well, you know, um, I'm old now, I'm going to pass these on to my heirs or Uh, I'm going to enjoy them until I pass away. And then I've made arrangements, you know, I've explained to my heirs that they should send them to this gun dealer or to this um, auction house uh, for uh, for sale so that my heirs will receive some money. Well, this pending transfer ban is a huge infringement on people's property rights because it essentially is saying that those that those assets will become non-saleable, i.e. Mm-hmm. worthless, yep. after that time. So people won't be able to pass them on to their heirs. They won't be able to sell them uh, or their heir, have their heirs sell them and realize the money. So they need to make those decisions much sooner than they ideally would have. The result has been a continued very high volume of transfers because people are, uh, you won't, you found very little and now nothing really that is arriving, you know, from outside the country on, on uh, gun shop shelves. But you will see uh, things that have been put on consignment mm-hmm. and things that 
um, are going to auctions. Auction houses have been holding multiple auctions. People that hold, held one auction every three months are now holding one a week in order to uh, deal with this increased volume and the appetite for basically, a, it's like an inventory adjustment. So people who had a large investment are trying to liquidate that investment or pass it on to their heirs. And people who might have thought, well, you know, over the next 20 years, I'd like to get this, I'd like to get that. Mm -hmm. Now they uh, are faced with trying to do that in a very short period of time. And, And in some cases that has worked to their benefit because they may have found things that were shaken loose out of people's collections mm-hmm. that they'd been looking for. Um, you know, I was able to to acquire a couple of items that I knew a gentleman who had them, he didn't want to sell, and finally he decided, well, I, I better sell. So That was actually going to be one of my questions earlier I meant to ask was, did you manage to pick up some something before this? Because you do have quite a collection, and uh, if people want to go back and listen to uh, a bit about your history, yeah. you were talking about how you have uh, a collection of military memorabilia, but uh, you also have a large firearm collection that you take around to some of these shows. Yes, I do. And yes, I did acquire um, a number of firearms, shall we say. <laughs> um, but there was two things, actually. Some were items for my collection and others were, um, well... Earlier this year, I attended a cowboy action shoot and kind of got fascinated with that idea. So even though I have absolutely no time to get to the range at all, I still entertain this delusional fantasy that somehow I'm going to take up cowboy action (laughs) shooting. So I bought some guns to enable me to... And you never know. Maybe one day you do. You get out there. Yeah, maybe one day things will settle down. Um, (laughs) But for the foreseeable future, I I think I have quite uh, quite a full agenda. So in any case, to come back to uh, the issue, what we've seen is a very high continued volume of transfers by people who are trying to preserve their property rights or what shreds of them are left after Mm. these um, unfortunate federal measures by either selling their firearms or, in many cases, transferring all of their firearms to their heirs and provided their heirs, uh, you know, have a restricted... Uh, possession and acquisition license. And those heirs might be children. In some cases, they're even grandchildren mm-hmm. if someone is is uh, old enough. And then there are a few people who've just, you know, they're fed up with having to comply with all the the nonsensical rules that the feds come out with. And so they just decide, well, I'm going to sell out and, and lead a simpler life. <laughs> well, is there any idea of what this is ultimately leading to? Because uh, just talking with some other people in the firearms community, you know, some think eventually this will just, they'll just prohib everything. And it's like, well, that's nice. You all, you all ran out and bought some new stuff. Uh, they're all prohib now. Your firearms license, no good. You can't take it to a range. Now it just literally sits in your safe. No. Well, um, I, nobody issued me with a crystal ball. I didn't get a magic wand or a crystal ball (laughs) when I took over this job. But I will come back to that. But first, I'd just like to maybe continue to finish off one one uh, mm-hmm. point that I was making earlier, which is that uh, although all of these transfers are supposed to be processed in Miramichi, the Canadian Firearms Program has told the people there, who, as I mentioned, are very dedicated, nice, uh, friendly people, um, very competent, um, but insufficient in number. Uh, they've been told 
that doing handgun transfers is not a priority. And that, uh, well, we'll get around to them sometime, and as long as they're in the system, they'll be honored. Well, for a variety of reasons, not everyone is happy with just trusting statements from the federal government. Mm -hmm. um, and so that causes people a great deal of anxiety when their transfers have not been approved. And um, because it's not a priority in Miramichi, and they are seriously under-resourced on all fronts, this receives a very low priority. And so they have very few resources dedicated to processing them. So we have stepped in and um, at varying times to varying degrees, um, we have been assisting Miramichi with doing their work. So mm -hmm. this is work that under existing federal provincial agreements should be done by Miramichi, but we are doing it um, in order to help them out. They're doing some, and we're doing some. Overall, I believe, based on the last numbers I saw, we have done more than they have, even though it's their job. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, uh, you have to respond to circumstances, okay? And so uh, I wish that I had more resources to dedicate to that. Right now, we don't. But hopefully, at some point, we will. Um, so one of the, one of the other added benefits besides the public safety benefits that I've alluded to and the customer service benefits that I've alluded to is when we do have more staff, it will give us a little bit more flexibility to respond to, uh, to, uh, federal measures. So now I've digressed in your question. The last point of your question was, oh yeah, about prohibited, uh, what's going to happen? Yeah. Kind of where yeah. do you see the, the handgun, uh, mm -hmm. we'll call it the handgun ban, mm -hmm. uh, uh, at least on the importation so far, yeah. but then the further transfers of it. Um, where do you see that kind of going? Well, I mean, I think that's very largely dependent on what kind of a government we have at the federal level. Um, with the current government, uh, I can only see them continuing in the uh, line that they have um, indicated so far, which is towards um, prohibiting um, and potentially confiscating uh, an ever larger number of firearms. And I think what's going to, to, I think the next little while is going to be very instructive in providing us with additional evidence that will help us to enable, uh, help to enable us to uh, predict the future more accurately because the federal government right now is, um, and I don't think this is, is any secret, they're sending letters to all kinds of potential partners, to provincial governments, to police forces, cities, and so on and so forth, trying to find someone to help them actually implement the confiscation of the firearms covered by the uh, May 2020 order in council. Mm -hmm. And so, not surprisingly, there has not been... Uh, a great deal of appetite uh, uh, expressed by uh, anyone to actively participate in this program. Um, and I'm, I mean, I'm, I don't know whether a, um, a um, firm reply has um, yet been dispatched, but I believe the intent of the Alberta government is that we won't have anything to do with this. Well, and I find that 
interesting in the sense that even when we deal with somebody who is a known, we'll say a known gang member or a known mm. member of a criminal organization who has a gun in their possession mm. illegally and we go to deal with them, mm. we've been accused uh, of forcing confrontations with mm. people. Mm. Now, talking about confiscating property, going up and saying, yesterday this was a legal item, mm -hmm. today it's illegal, give me that item, I would think would put some officers at some point, uh, and this would be, uh, and granted, these are all law-abiding law people, they've had background mm -hmm. checks and all kinds of different things, I would expect it to be much smaller proportion of them, but uh, there would be some potential for a, a confrontation there. Mm -hmm. And that would be even more so putting police at danger by telling them, hey, go up to that house and take that person's property. Well, I mean, there's there's um, a couple of points there. One is anytime there's a confrontation between any individuals, a negative outcome is always a possibility. Mm -hmm. uh, whether those are police, whether they're firearms owners, whether it's, in, I mean, can be people arguing over a parking spot. Okay, there's always some possibility that something bad's going to happen. Mm -hmm. So it's always been my my view that, um, you know, in my, in my life, I've always tried to avoid confrontations as much as possible. I mean, if I, if I have to get confrontational, well, I mean, if you back me into a corner, I have to, mm -hmm. but it's always best to avoid confrontations. So um, there's, there's, um, uh, that aspect. But I think the other important aspect to recall about the involvement of police forces in particular is that it's not like they didn't have anything else to do. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, I've, I do have occasion to speak to firearms officers and, and they do seem to have a number of important issues on their plates usually, um, most of which to at least an you know, a, a non-law enforcement person such as myself would seem to want to take a higher priority. Like people who, as you've mentioned, are clearly involved in illegal activity and in possession of, of firearms that they have been using to facilitate said illegal activity. Well, right, um, right from bad guy's mouth, yep. uh, uh, they've told us that, you know, it, it used to be you'd spend 90% of your police budget on fighting mm -hmm. The bad guys, mm -hmm. the the criminals, and now it's fifty percent. Mm -hmm. The other fifty percent, fifty percent is spent going after law-abiding citizens for whatever it might be, um, and then fighting uh, or placating to social justice issues. Uh, and now it's it pays to do crime mm -hmm. because the police are pulled in fifty different ways. Where uh, in all these uh, battles with the very people we're supposed to protect, and mm -hmm. uh, the taxpayers and so on and so mm -hmm. forth. So, yeah, uh, you're not wrong. <laughs> no, well, I mean, you're you're much better uh, aware of the the um, pushes and pulls on uh, the resources in the law enforcement system, um, uh, probably than than I am. But it, if one does look around. Uh, it does seem that there are a number of people, uh, a pretty substantial number of people who've decided that it's, that crime does pay, at mm -hmm. least for them. 
And so um, I, I would um, think that pursuing those uh, people, pursuing people who are actively involved in uh, harmful criminal activity, in drug trafficking, in gun trafficking, in smuggling firearms in from, uh, from elsewhere or uh, manufacturing them illegally through 3D printing or other means, uh, that these would be better uses of uh, police time and uh, taxpayer resources. Because even if it's not, even if they eventually were to find someone other than police to do this task, it's going to cost a lot of money. It will cost money in terms of compensation to um, those whose property is being confiscated. And even more importantly, I think, in when you do the final accounting, will be the cost of implementing that system. If the government gives you $1,000 for, or I think it's $1,337 for your AR-15 platform rifle, um, the cost of the taxpayer of that is not $1,337. Mm-hmm. It, it, if the government gives you $1,000, it usually probably costs them $5,000 to give you that $1,000 in a situation like this. Well, and the money they're giving you, like is, governments don't make money, they yeah. tax people yeah. and the money comes in and then mm-hmm. it goes, it's redistributed. Yeah. So they're really giving you your money back yeah. that you gave to them in the first place, but mm-hmm. you're also giving them some property on top of it. So you're losing out in the end, if we're looking at a very yeah. Yeah. simplified well, way. It's they're, they're, it's it's a, a situation where basically everybody loses. I mean, the taxpayer loses, the firearms owner loses. The um, every the people who are uh, going to be subjected to higher risks of criminal activity because resources that could have been used, mm-hmm. um, not just for police but for other other things. You know, um, it would be helpful. Um, I mean, the resources if it costs uh, several billion dollars to uh, run this program, I can think of many, many uses, uh, both police and, you know, social work and, and, uh, addiction counselors and, um, you know, border patrols and, and things like that, many different ways that that money could be better spent. Mm-hmm. So, uh, using, uh, using this, um, um, taxpayer money, it's not only the, the risks involved in that, it's the, it's the, uh, misallocation of resources to, uh, purposes that, are not going to be uh, effective mm-hmm. in in reducing crime. They will only, you know, my, my you know my other long term concern about this is I actually believe in uh, the basic idea of our firearms control system in in the idea of screening people. Okay, I don't believe in firearms prohibiting particular types of firearms is is a productive approach, but I believe very much in the in the whole, you know, screening of firearms owners, and I think that can be um, that can be done better. But when the when the federal government continually comes up with, well, to use a technical term, cockamamie ideas, <laughs> um, that clearly will not affect uh, public safety, but do. Uh, form a serious uh, infringement on the property rights and intrusion into the personal lives of law-abiding Canadians, 
then this undermines the credibility of the whole system. And I think it's essential to maintain the credibility of, of uh, our firearms control system mm-hmm. rather than undermine it with these kinds of misguided measures. I think one only needs to look around the world, not across Canada, around the world, south of the border, in Europe, wherever, everywhere, the credibility of our institutions is under attack. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, in, in many cases, People do have, um, you know, reasonable criticisms to make, uh, but we have to not throw the baby out with the bathwater. I mean, we do need to have uh, institutions to uh, maintain our society in an orderly and um, law-abiding, safe fashion. And um, when the credibility of our institutions is undermined, that undermines the very basis on on which we build uh, a system that helps to keep us all safe, that keeps society orderly, that enables yeah. us to then engage in productive activity and produce wealth so that people have a rising standard of living. They can raise families, uh, buy homes, uh, live the, uh, the kind of life that we want to have for all Canadians. I think it's uh, a lot of... A lot of the political arguments that are out there, whether it's firearms or anything else, mm-hmm. it's just the easy road to blame, you know, blame firearms, blame the item, and we can throw some mm-hmm. legislation at it and say, look, we did a, we did something, uh, rather than dealing with the actual people. Mm-hmm. So if a person's doing something they're not supposed to, if it's in criminal law, deal with them mm-hmm. in the criminal law and hold mm-hmm. them accountable. Mm-hmm. That's not done nowadays. Uh, whether if it's through civil law, deal with them through the civil law, hold them accountable. But with firearms, uh, um, you can keep putting new rules in, but somebody just finds another way around it. So, you know, you can't have a 16 inch barrel on a rifle. Let's go to 18. Okay. Now we'll go to 19. Now we go to 20. Can't have a certain type of gun. Can't have a a certain part of it. Okay. Now we're going to 3d print them. Now we're going to come up with new rules for 3D printing and then mm-hmm. somebody will come up with something else. How about if you just deal with the person because that hasn't changed throughout this whole entire interaction. Yeah. And I think in, you know, one of the, one of the driving forces and, you know, I know in your, in your role, um, you probably have a, a more firsthand exposure to this, but uh, from my um, observation, it appears that a very large part of uh, the violent crime and uh, the crimes committed with firearms, which are overlapping but not exactly the same categories, mm-hmm. um, are driven by the drug trade. Mm-hmm. And uh, as long as there are people who are who believe, often mistakenly, that they're going to get rich selling drugs, um, a small percentage of them do, but most of them end up in jail, as mm-hmm. I'm sure you you counsel people. Um, as long as people believe they're going to make a lot of money that way, there's going to be uh, a flow of people into the profession of dealing in drugs. And when you're dealing in drugs, you have high value inventory, a lot of large uh, floating sum of cash. Uh, you deal with not law-abiding people on both the supply and uh, mm-hmm. customer side, and 
you can't rely on the police to come and protect you because you're doing something that's illegal. Mm -hmm. So it's natural that those people will conclude they need to have a firearm and that they will acquire one by whatever means uh, is necessary. So in the long run, I think, uh, you know, a, a full solution is going to involve something to address the uh, trade in in uh, drugs and all other uh, forms of illegal activities, uh, human trafficking and and things like that. As long as there's money to be made illegally, um, most of that money will be cash. And the same arguments that I've uh, just, uh, same analysis that I've just applied to drug dealing will apply whether you're, you know, human trafficking or smuggling exotic species or, or uh, whatever. Well, you, and even with that, it, it, and what I was saying previously, where you know you can't just legislate your way out of a problem, it, but you need a whole solution, a three hundred and sixty mm-hmm. idea where police are involved, the mm-hmm. courts are involved. Um, maybe there is a, a component for legislation, but we need. There's a whole cultural aspect mm-hmm. to it. And you look at pop culture and and what it portrays mm-hmm. uh, around firearms and what's real and what's Mm -hmm. not. And we hear those narratives all the time. People say, why don't you just shoot Mm -hmm. the gun out of their hand? Mm -hmm. Because that's not possible. That is a complete (laughs) luck, 100% luck shot if you make that. Um, So yeah, people just have a a completely wrong perception of what uh, I'll say the cure is Mm -hmm. for this. It takes people on all sides to sit down and have a real conversation about what needs to be done. I think a lot of the politicking comes into it and then it, oh. it gets really skewed. Well, you know, uh, you raise the issue of um, popular culture there. And I think that's in a very important one because that's one of the reasons why I think it's essential to public safety that we have a uh, flourishing law-abiding firearms community. And that includes all of the different aspects. That includes um, the... the um, People who are using for occupational purposes, ranchers and farmers, armored car guards, for example, um, target shooters, collectors, uh, hunters, uh, all of these people, uh, the people who do the gun show circuits and so on, those law-abiding people uh, provide an example of uh, the proper and appropriate uses of firearms. And... By so doing, they are rendering a public service by helping to create a healthy public attitude towards firearms. But if public attitudes towards firearms are only shaped by what people see in video games, in movies, uh, on uh, on sensationalized news programs, mm-hmm. and so on, um, then we will have uh, a very unhealthy attitude towards firearms. People will think that the only thing, you know, that there is to do with a firearm is something negative, that that Mm -hmm. the only thing you can do is go out and harm people. Well, we were having a bit of a conversation before we fired up the podcast here too about some of the strategies for uh, getting that exact information out to people who aren't necessarily involved with the firearm community. So, I mean, we can all talk within our own Mm -hmm. circles and say, Mm -hmm. oh, we want this change or this should be better. But really, I think the the main goal should be to get those messages out to people, um, even including politicians and media, 
mm-hmm. uh, as much as they're willing to kind of comply with or not comply, mm-hmm. but uh, take part in any kind of discussion, an actual mm-hmm. discussion on it and see, hey, this actually has some practical application. It has value outside of whatever nefarious thing you think mm-hmm. we're all trying to do with a, a firearm. Because end of the day, it's the person mm-hmm. you have to deal with, not mm-hmm. the item. Um, and kind of tied in with mm-hmm. that, uh, it just we saw with the uh, mass murder in Saskatchewan, and the two guys running around there stabbing people. Mm-hmm. So even without a firearm, mass murder is possible. Mm-hmm. And people would say, well, you know, one might be faster than the other. You can do more damage with the other. That was a pretty serious event, affected you know dozens of families. We have lots of people that are dead because of it, and because of a knife. Mm-hmm. So, you know, is that going to be is that going to come up in any kind of uh, political debate? Uh, we saw with Nova Scotia, the we'll call it the uh, alleged interference of the federal government with the RCMP mm-hmm. and trying to push a gun narrative. Well, nobody said anything about Saskatchewan. So I thought that was interesting. Yes. Well, you've raised a, a number of, of um, issues there. And um, incidentally, uh, with respect to the, the um, allegations surrounding um, Commissioner of the RCMP, Commissioner of the RCMP also happens to be the Commissioner of Firearms. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, under Bill C-21, the some of the authority of chief firearms offices would be uh, re-centralized with that office. Mm-hmm. And it appears to me that the commissioner of firearms, particularly when that commissioner also happens to be the commissioner of the RCMP, has a few other more important things to deal with, uh, more pressing matters. But to come back to the, the main uh, stream of what you were alluding to, I think there were two points. One was about educating the public, mm-hmm. and the other was about, um, well, it's somewhat connected, um, use of things other than firearms in violence. One of my pet peeves is that the um, the press has often um, quite seriously misrepresented the... the um, uh, history um, when they talk about these unfortunate uh, mass killings because they have only focused on and they'll rank only those that were you committed with firearms. Mm-hmm. And um, many of these are, of course, I don't want to in any way make light of them. They're very, very tragic incidents that have involved firearms, such as the, the killings in, in Nova Scotia. But um, actually, the two largest mass killings in Canadian history were not done with firearms. One yeah. was the 1982 bombing of, uh, of a plane that killed something like 300 people. And then there was also an arson in uh, a Montreal nightclub that killed 37. And so um, this shows that there, um, there are uh, that people who are determined to do harm uh, will find ways uh, of doing that. And this incident in Saskatchewan, this tragedy uh, that occurred, um, 
that uh, deeply affected uh, primarily a First Nations community. Um, although, I mean, when things like that happen, everyone is affected. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, those, uh, the, that uh, uh, incident, if you look around the world, uh, like in China, for example, where there is virtually no private ownership of, of firearms, there are many, many incidents where people have gone on stabbing, um, stabbing uh, rampages, particularly in schools, for reasons that are not entirely clear to me, because um, I'm not an expert on, on Chinese sociology, mm -hmm. but they have, in many cases, uh, been well into double digits in terms of the number of, of uh, victims, and tragically, mainly children. Um, there have also similarly been uh, incidents of that kind in Japan, uh, there was one where uh, a guy gained access to a uh, facility for uh, people with severe, um, I think it was uh, severe mental handicaps, and um, killed, again, uh, well into double digits, a uh, number of, of people. So that doesn't mean that we don't need to do anything about firearms, but it does need mean that we do need to put things in perspective. And um, my feeling with respect to any kind of uh, problem is that it needs to be dissected and then each aspect of that problem dealt with with an appropriate mechanism using, I mean, if there are, um, you know, if you want to clear the table, you can use a two by four and sweep it across and, and yes, the table will end up cleared, but you'll have caused a great deal of damage in, in the, in the process. Whereas if you, okay, well, here there's a bug, we'll use a fly swatter on that. Here there's mm -hmm. a teacup and we'll put that carefully away in the cupboard. You know, that, that kind of, um, uh, approach I think is more effective in terms of educating the public. Of course, that's a big challenge. Um, because for most people nowadays, most Canadians probably will not have a great deal of exposure to firearms. Mm -hmm. Um, most Canadians live in big cities and they don't come from a firearms owning background. And so, and it's probably been, you know, if they came from, um, if they're uh, newcomers to the country, they may come from a country where there's no, there's no family history uh, there. If they come from um, a background that has had a longer uh, history in Canada, it may, be, have, may have been generations since there was anyone using firearms in their family. So you have a large group of people who don't know very much about an important topic and who are probably not highly motivated to learn much mm -hmm. about it. And that's why I think it's really important, probably the single most important lesson from that is that it's really important that we keep firearms-related problems to a very minimum level because that's what will keep it off the radar of people who don't know anything about it and so would be likely to advocate or support measures that are inappropriate. Yeah, I think where the, that comes into play and the two by four analogy is a, a good one where current politics, mm. the reaction is, you know, oh, I have a whole group of people shouting and screaming about something. Let me immediately 
give a response. And yeah, it could do a whole lot of damage behind mm -hmm. the scenes, but I'll deal with that after. So rather than saying to people, no, mm -hmm. and then we're going to look at this and figure out what's happening, mm -hmm. people all want an immediate reaction mm -hmm. and then deal with all the stuff after. And I think my ask uh, of people and especially younger people would be, if you see something in the news, mm -hmm. whatever it may be, but if everybody's talking about something as some hot button yeah. issue, get educated on it, mm -hmm. but also know the sources that you're looking at. And I would encourage people to look at it from mm -hmm. both sides. Mm -hmm. Go talk to people that might be uh, huge gun nuts and are very heavily mm -hmm. involved in mm -hmm. that community. And then go talk to the people that are on the opposing side. Mm -hmm. And think for yourself mm -hmm. and uh, try to truly develop an appreciation for being a well-rounded uh, person who actually can talk to people on both sides mm -hmm. and form an opinion. Don't just get an opinion from a, a headline. Don't get an opinion from the morning news mm -hmm. because I see a lot of things on there that, mm -hmm. uh, especially uh, scenes that I go to or stuff that I have intimate mm -hmm. knowledge of. And the news, they're just reading off the teleprompter. So what they say is not necessarily true or gospel. Um, it's the telephone game. Messages get passed along. So I, I would highly encourage people to uh, get involved and at least try to get uh, educated on something. If not, go and get that practical application and maybe go out to a gun range and just see what it's all about. So, yeah. Well, you sound a lot like... Um like me when I was in the classroom 10 years ago, because mm -hmm. one of my favorite exercises was that I would have people do engage in debates on mm -hmm. topics. I was teaching international business, not firearms issues, but I would have people argue, uh, you know, uh, have a debate on um, a given topic. And I would encourage people to take the stand, to take the position that was diametrically opposite to the position that, to which they were initially inclined. Mm -hmm. So if they were great, strong on free trade, argue against free trade. Yeah. If they were against yeah. free trade, argue for free trade. <laughs> and those who took that advice usually told me afterwards that they learned an enormous amount from doing that. Mm -hmm. um, and they understood the issues a lot better. And that was, of course, the whole point of why I suggested that. Yeah, and you know what? It just makes you a better person for it. And at least you have a basis from which to kind of further your mm -hmm. knowledge. Mm -hmm. And you have somewhere to start and, you know, be your own person. Mm -hmm. Don't just be a parrot of the headlines. Mm -hmm. um, one thing, because we're getting on a longer than I thought I would have you here, mm -hmm. so I want to keep you here all day. Okay. Uh, did you have another point on that? You're writing something down, well, but... Uh, well, I was just going to say that, I mean, one of the things that I do is... Uh, we do get letters occasionally from people, you know, who think that uh, our office is there uh, to use a couple of terms, you know, we're allowing unfettered access to firearms mm. or we're doing this, that, or the other thing. And so I, I make a point of, although I have someone who normally replies to correspondence, I make a point of personally responding to some of those uh, questions so that I can point out to people the... Um, the very important public safety work that our office does. And it was, it's that public safety work that justifies the investment that the provincial government has decided to make in, in our office. Because 
you know, this is not just a matter of like the work of our office is not just catering to some people who have a particular hobby. Mm -hmm. It is a very real public safety work. And um, so, you know, um, the other thing that I try to do, you mentioned about public education, is um, that's why I do a ton of interviews, podcasts like this one and and others that I have done, and try to uh, make people aware of uh, some of the complexities involved in these issues. And my hope is that by the level of detail I'm able to discuss and the hopefully rational manner in which I try to present it, that they will recognize that um, the people who are responsible for these issues are taking them seriously mm-hmm. and that we are um, doing important work that we do thoughtfully, carefully, and with the public safety utmost in our mind at all times. Yeah. Uh, one last question I do want to ask. Um, Pierre Polivier is head of the uh, PC party. Yes. Or conservatives now. Um, do you know, is there any, like, mm-hmm. if they were to be elected into the federal office, um, or would they actually have any rule changes they would follow through with? Is there any kind of word on, you know, he seems to be on the side of some gun ownership. I don't know what the exact plan is, but uh, any word on what the Conservative Party is kind of looking at for maybe reversing any liberal policies? Well, um, so first of all, uh, although I did have some, you know, I was uh, somewhat of a political activist before I took this job. In order to take this job, I had to withdraw from... Mm-hmm. From any um, any partisan political uh, activity, so um, I'm not uh, personally familiar with his activities, uh, his positions on on this, or don't have inside knowledge, as it were. Uh, but I can say a couple of things. Um, I have met uh, Mr. Poilievre a couple of times, uh, only briefly at public events. Um, so I don't have any uh, keen insight into his mind. But when he talks about uh, making Canada a, a freer country, I think that would logically lead one to conclude that um, he would uh, take an approach that was uh, based on uh, favoring restrictions only if they were necessary, not simply because they might um, gain some political partisan political advantage, mm-hmm. which seems to be the, the current approach. Um, the other thing is that oh. I believe that in the course, uh, firearms were not a major issue. I think it's always actually good for firearms owners if firearms are not a major election issue, Yeah, um, particularly because firearms owners are a minority. And so um, I would, if I were counseling Mr. Poilievre, which I am not, um, I would suggest to him that uh, it would be good to keep the focus on crime rather than on firearms. Um, and uh, I believe that during the um, run-up, during the de- various debates and discussions and so on, uh, the position that they had taken, to the best of my knowledge, uh, is that they would review uh, the measures that have been taken by 
the federal liberals and uh, only keep the ones that they felt were uh, providing a public safety benefit. And I think that there are very few of the measures taken by uh, the current federal government that would pass a test of that nature. Yeah. I don't know. I just wasn't, uh, I didn't think he was, well, I put it this way. I think he comes across as more open to having discussions mm. about things, yes. maybe rational ones. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, Well, that's, that's the, uh, I, I never fear uh, an open and frank and data-driven evidence-based discussion around firearms issues because I think on all of those scores, mm -hmm. uh, one would end up coming to the kinds of positions that I currently take, which is uh, to believe that a uh, flourishing, carefully regulated, but flourishing firearms community is entirely compatible with a very high level of public safety. Oh, perfect. We'll kind of wrap it up there. We appreciate you coming in again. And uh, I'm sure we'll have you back in, in the future because there's lots more coming up within the firearms community. Well, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. And it's always a pleasure to, to be here. And uh, hopefully by the time I uh, come back, we'll, we'll, um, things will have settled down a bit and we'll have uh, perhaps more positive news to report. And, uh, you know, I'm looking forward to uh, the expansion of our office. Maybe some of your your um, colleagues who are nearing or just past retirement might even want to consider joining us. Well, there you go. There'll be lots of job postings coming up soon. Yeah, so. they'll all be on the Government of Alberta <laughs> website. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you.